I could be wrong, but I think the last time I was invited to speak here was on a Labor Day weekend when half the congregation was gone camping. So I'm starting to see a bit of a pattern here, and I'm not sure entirely how I feel about that pattern. Um, for the last month, I've been doing a series of messages uh, at uh, the North Paris Church and the Paris Hill Church on Advent and Christmas and Epiphany, and as part of that series every week, uh, Laura has come up and done a reading related to the theme for the day. And this week, uh, the church on Paris Hill canceled because of the storm, which is the reason why I could be here with you this morning. And so I'm very glad to be here to celebrate Epiphany, and uh, as we prepare to hear from uh, the word of the Lord. Laura's gonna come and read for us about Epiphany. The Bible begins and ends with light. In Genesis chapter one, we read that God created the heavens and the earth, and as his first creative act, he created light. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning, the first day. Then, in the book of Revelation, in the very last chapter, we have the promise that God will reverse the darkness and all will be light. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Between the first chapter of Genesis and the last chapter of Revelation, light is used as a symbol in many places and in many ways, it is a symbol of righteousness, knowledge, truth, glory, vindication, salvation, and of course, our Savior Jesus Christ. Isaiah is filled with light metaphors, such as Isaiah 60, which tells us, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. The arrival of this long-expected light from God is what we celebrate at Epiphany, the declaration of the Savior to all the nations. It is the desire of our hearts that the glory and the good news of Jesus Christ would be declared and believed throughout the whole world, wherever people are in need of light in the darkness. The wise men become, for us, a symbol of this revealing of the light to the world. They are foreigners from a far country who kneel in reverence before the newly arrived light and swear their allegiance to him. Interesting, they followed the light in order to arrive at the light. Like them, Ephesians 2 describes us as foreigners and strangers who have found citizenship in heaven through Jesus Christ. As with gladness men of old did the guiding star behold, as with joy they hailed its light, leading onward, beaming bright, so most gracious God may we evermore be led to thee. Thank you. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 22 through 35, and a little bit later on in the sermon, I will refer back to these verses, as I will also refer to the verses that uh, Tom read at the beginning and Laura just reiterated from Isaiah chapter 60. So really, those are kind of the foundational passages for this morning, Isaiah 60 and Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, uh, starting at verse 22. 
When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for the privilege of being together here in this place, but also all around the community uh, through streaming. Uh, Lord, I pray that this morning, our light, the light of the world would be lifted up and glorified, that Jesus Christ would be in our community and in our fellowship, given a high and exalted place. Help me, Lord, this morning to teach clearly from your word about the arrival of that light into this world. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So last week, last Sunday, we actually didn't go to church at Paris Hill or North Paris either. We were all stuck at home with COVID, so we had a, a good time of it last week. Uh, when we're stuck at home, uh, our habit is on a Sunday, if we can't go out to church, we find a church service to live stream. And one of my favorite things to do is, well, not live stream, but um, when my younger brother was the pastor in Cape Elizabeth, they always put their services on YouTube. And so we'll see what time of the year it is, and we'll go to that same time of the year from eight years ago and pick one of his church services. So I get to hear my little brother preach, which I always enjoy hearing him preach. Uh, and I thought last week, well, it's Epiphany Week. Let's find an Epiphany message from Jonathan, and maybe I'll get some ideas for my message, and I can steal them from him. Um, and so it, it turned out that he used a lot of the same passages that I was planning to use, but went in different directions. But I didn't get to steal much from him. But one thing that uh, he did startled me, and that was that part of his message, part of the Old Testament reading for the day was Psalm 97. And it contains this in verses one and two. The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And that surprised me because when we talk about epiphany, we are usually talking about light. 
And we think of passages like 1 John 1, 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. God is light, but Psalm 97 describes him as being surrounded by clouds and thick darkness. That doesn't seem like much of an epiphany message to me. It almost seems like the opposite of that. But this is part of the mystery, and I'm going to use that word mystery, uh, and you'll see why a little bit later. Uh, This is part of the mystery of the epiphany. Until the coming of Christ, the light of God was hidden from us. God himself is light, yes, but we were incapable of seeing or comprehending that light. It makes me think of the hymn by Walter C. Smith, Immortal, Invisible. Immortal, Invisible, God only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Yes, he is light, but that light was hidden from humanity's eyes. And we see this hiding of God's light in a few ways in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 33, we get a really good example of that. Moses is talking to God on the mountain and he begs God, let me see your face. And God says, no. (laughs) And explains that if he saw his face, it would kill him or anyone else to experience the radiance of his glory full on. So instead, God hides Moses in a rock cleft, covers his eyes with his hand, and passes by, and then removes his hand, allowing Moses to witness only the receding glimpse of God's glory. And God says, but my face you will not see. And then in the very next chapter, Moses comes down off the mountain to speak to the people, and he has on his face a reflected radiance of God's glory so bright that the people had to cover their eyes, and Moses eventually had to put a veil on to shield the people from the reflected glory of God's radiant light. Remember that the people had a veil, or Moses had a veil over his face to filter the light. That's important. Now, I can relate to all of this uh, personally about light and uh, it being too bright and blinding. Uh, I've been in the last few years having some issues with my corneas in my eyes, and, and one of the consequences of that is I have really struggled with contrasts, bright and darkness. I no longer drive at night because if I'm out on the road at night and a car is coming the other way, I see nothing except their headlights. So Laura does all the nighttime driving now. Sometimes I get up in the morning and I flip on a light and it hurts my eyes, excruciating to the point that I have to turn the lights off and sit there in the darkness of the morning for several minutes while my eyes adjust and then I can turn on a night light. So I can understand this. Here's another way of looking at it that you might enjoy. Uh, this spring, I forget exactly when it is, April 8th? When's the eclipse? Is it? I don't remember now. April, May, something like that. Uh, there's going to be a solar eclipse. Did you guys know this? Very exciting. Uh, the path of totality is going to pass through Maine, uh, maybe about an hour north of us. We're hoping to... Uh, travel to that area of totality so that we can experience a full solar eclipse. And Laura has even already 
gotten us these great things. These are great. I love it. Do you know what I see right now? <laughs> You're all gone. <laughs> these are so amazing. You put them on and you can't see a single thing. But with them on, you can look at the sun, right? Um, and uh, so we're, we're looking forward to that. But you can look at the sun with those on, but the moment you put them on, everything else but the sun has completely disappeared. So the, the message of the epiphany, or at least part of the message, is this. The light of God, which was once hidden from our eyes, is now visible for all the world to see. We don't need to close our eyes. We don't need to cover our faces. We don't need a veil over our faces. And we can take off the eclipse glasses. We can see the light of God fully in the person of Jesus Christ. And I want to share with you just a few verses. Uh, I'm not going to have you look them all up, but if you want to jot the references down so you can look them up later, that's fine. The first one is this, John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 which say this, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome or understood it. Verse 14 of the same chapter, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Not like Moses, who had to have his face covered, we have seen full on the glory of God, full of grace and truth in the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. When we look at Christ, we are looking at the glory and the radiance of God the Father unveiled. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Verse 19 of the same chapter. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. When we look at Jesus, we see the glory of God. One of my favorites, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18. It says this, and we all with unveiled faces contemplate or look upon the Lord's glory and are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That's a direct reference to Moses, that unveiling part, and if you looked a couple of verses back, you would see that it talks about Moses and the veiling of the face. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians, now we with unveiled faces, we look directly at Jesus. We see the light. And by that light, we are transformed. Rip off the eclipse glasses is the message. <clears throat> to use a very old pun, I'm sorry, don't stare at the sun, S-U-N, but stare fully at the sun, S-O-N. In staring at him, 
you will see the mystery of God's glory and light and be transformed by it. It's why we are told in Hebrews, fix your eyes on Jesus. Stare into the light. Now, this is different from the Old Testament, and it's different from how we often think about light. In the Old Testament, they were told, hey, don't look at the light. And that kind of makes sense, because what is a light for? Well, if I have a flashlight with me, and I didn't bring one this morning, but if I had a flashlight, how would I use the flashlight? Would I turn it on and aim it at my eyes? The purpose of the flashlight is not for you to look at the light. It's the purpose is for you to aim it where you're going so that you can see where to go. But with the arrival of Jesus, we're told to look at the light. Fix our eyes on the light. Why? Because not only is Jesus the light, he is also the path. I am the way, Jesus says. Look at the light and you see the path because he is the path. We fix our eyes on him. The light of the world come into the world. Silly story, because I have to tell silly stories when I come here. It's part of the rules, I think. Uh, this year, for Christmas, some friends of ours gave us a game that we'd never seen before. It's called Telestrations. Have any of you seen Telestrations? You guys have seen... Yes, okay. Anyone else? Okay, so let me just very quickly explain the game. Uh, you have a pad, which is kind of a uh, whiteboard material, and you have a, a whiteboard eraser, dry erase eraser and you have cards with words on them. And somebody rolls the dice, and then you pick the word that you're going to do, and the first person in their pad writes the word, and then they pass it to the second person. And the second person takes the pad, looks at the word, flips the page, and draws a picture of what they, the word on the first page. Then they pass it to the next person, and the next person looks at the picture they've drawn, and tries to guess what that's a picture of, flips the page and writes their guess, and then passes it to the next person who then draws a picture of the word they have received. So if you've played the game Telephone, where you do this just with words whispered around a circle, it's the same idea, except you're drawing pictures of it. And it is hilarious. I, I can tell from your reactions that you're a huge fan of this game. We love it. We, it's, it's, a, it's a great game. You get back to the beginning and you look at the pad of paper and you say, Holy smokes, how did we get to this picture from what I wrote down? Uh, and sometimes you get to uh, pick your own word because the card, some of them will have a blank on it. And so if that's what gets selected, you get to pick your own word. So I was the recipient of one of my kids picking their own word, which is not, you never know what's going to happen. <laughs> so the word I received was bluey. Anyone know who Bluey is? Okay, we've got a few people who know who Bluey is. So Bluey is a TV show that was made in Australia. It's a kid's show about a family of dogs. And it is, it is an adorable show, and I really enjoy it. And I've watched a few episodes with the kids. So here I am looking at this, and it says Bluey, and I know exactly who Bluey is because I've watched the show. And so I say, okay, I have to draw a picture of a dog that looks like Bluey. There's a problem. 
I've watched several episodes of Bluey, but I've never watched it with the purpose of studying and analyzing what Bluey looks like. It's like, okay. So I drew my picture, handed it off to the next person who looked at it and immediately wrote, I'm so proud of this, the big bad wolf. <laughs> <laughs> And when the pad had been all the way around the circle and was revealed what everybody drew, and my picture of Bluey was shown to the family, you know what they all did? They laughed at me! <laughs> and they couldn't stop laughing! <laughs> so humiliated, I'll never be an artist. <laughs> but... <laughs> Fortunately, the kids had just gotten from the library a book of bluey stuff. And so one of my kids took that book and sat there and studied bluey and very carefully copied what she saw. Daddy, this is what bluey looks like. I'm like, yes. And she got really good at drawing Bluey to the point that if anybody even had seen an advertisement for the show and saw one of her pictures, they'd be like, yeah, that's obviously Bluey. But what's the difference between me and her? I had never fixed my eyes on Bluey in the way that she did when she studied it in that book. This is what we need to understand about Jesus, the light of the world, that we are to fix our eyes on him. We don't just have a passing glance at him. We open our Bibles, go to, go to Matthew, to Mark, to Luke, to John, and there you will find in black and white and red, depending on your Bible, who Jesus is. You will fix your eyes on him and you will see his actions. You will see his words. You will see his interactions with others. You will see his character. Fix your eyes on him. And you will be transformed by him. Your life will become an illustration of Jesus. So that just like anyone could look at my kid's picture and say, that's Bluey. Somebody can look at your life and say, that's Jesus. Is that true of us? Not always true of me, that's for sure. So that's the message of Epiphany, but there's also another part of this that I want to talk about. It's a message that's gently hinted at in the book of Titus, and Laura referred to it uh, in her uh, reading. It's the message that the light of God appeared to all people. Uh, let me clarify this. Uh, this is really interesting. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, or epiphanied, to offer salvation to all people. Now, that word epiphany comes from uh, an old Greek term uh, that was used to describe when the ancient Greek gods and goddesses supposedly appeared to their followers, they would epiphany, they would appear. The word is epiphanos, I think. Um, and it's very convenient that the Greeks had this word 
because now we get to use it to describe Jesus appearing. But what was unique about Jesus, obviously aside from the fact that he truly did appear, is that he didn't just appear to a chosen few. Titus says he appeared offering salvation to all people. That's what we heard in Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah prophesied that the light would come Get ready, wake up, get out of bed, the dawn is here. Darkness was over all the peoples, the nations, the Jews and the Gentiles. But your light, Isaiah says, when it comes will be so bright that it will bring the nations of the world out of darkness. You will be like a candle that draws the moths in except not for their destruction, for their salvation. The idea of the light of God coming for all peoples is confirmed in the Luke passage that I read earlier. When Simeon holds the baby in his arms and says, oh God, I'm ready to die now because I've seen everything I need to see in this world. I've held your salvation in my arms and that's all I was waiting for. Just let me go in peace now. But as he's saying all of that, he also says this, I lost it. Oh, I got to flip a page here. Not that page either. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, this is verse 29 of Luke 2. You may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. The light of the world has come for all peoples, all peoples. This matters a lot in the New Testament writings, and you find references to this all over the place, that Christ came for all the peoples. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, the arrival of God's light was a mystery. The full implications of it were lost on the people of Isaiah's time. They read verses like Isaiah chapter 60, verses 13 and 14. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the juniper, the fir, and the cypress together to adorn my sanctuary, and I will glorify the place for my feet. The children of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. These verses promise that the nations are going to come to bring adornment to God's sanctuary and that all the nations who have oppressed them will come bringing restitution. But the easy interpretation and the convenient interpretation was that God was going to bring all the nations to them to be their servants. That God was going to have the Israelites sit at feast while the Gentiles served at the table. That's the easy interpretation of those verses, and it's what was assumed. What they couldn't imagine and what was a mystery to them was that God did not intend for them to sit at the table while the Gentiles served them. What God intended was to enlarge their table in order that the Gentiles could join with them as brothers and sisters at the feast. 
The message was never, God's going to bring you servants, but God will bring you brothers and sisters. Now, the reason I've referred to it as a mystery is because that's what Paul calls it. And I'm going to read a few verses from Ephesians 3. If you want to flip there, you can. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, in other words, in the times of Isaiah, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So what is the mystery, Paul? What is it? You've been building up the anticipation here. Tell us the mystery. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Yes. The light of the world came not just to those of the house and lineage of David and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but to whoever will. Across the whole wide world, the light of the world is the light for the world. It is the reason that we are here. We have seen the glory of the light of the world, and we have believed in him. And he has removed the stain of our sin, preparing us to feast with him one day in glory. And by the way, just a word of mention this, hopefully next week you'll get to uh, celebrate the Lord's table. And that is just simply a little glimpse of that someday feast when we sit down, Jews and Gentiles, with our Savior in glory. And I could stop there, but... There's another implication to all of this that I think we should consider. I can't blame those ancient Israelites of Isaiah's time for missing the big picture. I really can't. For starters, Paul makes it clear it was intentionally obscured until the right moment. It was a mystery. But also, I can't blame them for missing the big picture because missing the big picture is part of human nature. Okay? And we are also capable of missing the big picture. It is divine nature to say, build a bigger table, I'm bringing guests. And it's human nature to say, I don't want a bigger table. I like my dining room just the way it is. I like to control who's invited. I like to serve the food I want to serve in the way I want to serve it. And if somebody else shows up, they may have different customs and different foods. And they may not do the same things the same way that I do. And I may not like it in my house. It's my table, and I want to keep it that way. I can't blame them for thinking the light is for us 
and for our benefit because anything else creates grave risks. The risk that they will lose power, that things will change in ways that they're not comfortable with, that people will come to the table with manners that they don't like. And if you read the New Testament, if you read the book of Acts, if you read the book of Galatians, you will realize that this is a grave concern, that the invitation of the Gentiles into the church and welcome at the feast table was not just this little thing that happened. It was an earthquake. It was, it was demolishing customs and traditions. And the Jews and the Gentiles for, for years could not figure out how to work together. And the apostles had to keep saying to them, this is what you need to do because you are now brothers and sisters. The Jews would say, we have to accept people who aren't circumcised. And the Jews would say, we have to accept people who eat lobster. <laughs> We have to accept people who eat food that's been offered to idols? And you're not going to tell them, no, they can't? All these traditions of our elders that we've stood by for centuries, you're telling us they don't matter, that our Gentile brothers are more important, our Gentile sisters are more important than how we've done things for centuries? It was an earthquake of epic. Biblical proportions. In the same way, we can fall into that same trap. As a church, we get very accustomed to how we do things. And we get nervous about who else might walk through the door and how they might want to change things. And we start to hang on and say, but this is my way because it's my church. The book of 1 John is all about, or I shouldn't say all about, but a lot of it is about the love of the brethren, how we love and we care for one another. But right in the middle of it, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, John tosses this out for the people to chew on. He says, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. The light is not just for those of us within the four corners of the four walls of this building. There's a reason that Jesus told a parable about the shepherd leaving 90 and 9 to go find the one. Because the light of the world is not just for you and me sitting here in this building. It's for the people who are out there and need to see. But here's what we need to know. When we invite Christ, the light of the world, to our table, it ceases to be our table. And he's going to invite whoever he wants to come dine with us. When we invite Christ to our homes, it ceases to be our home. And he will invite whoever he wants to take up residence. When we invite Christ into our church, it's no longer our church. And he will invite whoever he wants to the brotherhood and the sisterhood of faith. No matter how uncomfortable it might be for those of us who have always thought of it as my church 
and my way. It's not my church and it's not my way. It's Jesus, the light of the world who has come for sinners. I wanted to finish with a poem uh, titled Dinner with the Lord, which was written by Marcella Holloway. One takes a risk when one invites the Lord, whether to dine or talk the afternoon away, for always the unexpected soon turns up. A woman breaks her precious nard. A sinner does the task you should have assumed. A leper who is cleansed must show his proof. Suddenly you see the very roof removed and a cripple clutters up your living room. You know what that's a reference to, right? There's no telling what to expect when Christ walks in the door. The table set for four must often be enlarged and decorum thrown to the winds. It's his voice that calls them, and it's no use to bolt and bar the door. His kingdom knows no bounds of roof, of wall, or floor. Tom's going to come and lead in an epiphany hymn, um, Jesus Shall Reign. Uh, and as you sing this hymn, uh, take notice of how the hymn repeatedly refers to the fact that Christ is for the whole world.